Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the false allure of libertarian paternalism. And Richard, that is the title of your most recent piece for Defining Ideas. And if that phrase, libertarian paternalism, rings familiar in the ears of our listeners, it's because that concept was the centerpiece of a book called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. It's just now marking its 10th anniversary. And that book is grounded in what has come to be known as behavioral economics, which is a strain of economic thinking that is heavily influenced by psychology. And what behavioralists will say is that the neoclassical economic view, which basically holds that man is a, a rational actor and can, left to his own devices, be counted on to act in his own self-interest, they will say that that is, if not wrong, at least incomplete. They'll say it's an elegant model, but in the real world, individuals routinely fall prey to irrationality or incorrect heuristics. So before we even get to the implications of that argument, let's just start with that kind of intellectual keystone, Richard. Is it fair to say that what is sometimes called uh, homo economicus, the, the view of man as rational economic actor, is too charitable in interpretation of actual human behavior? Well, this is a very complicated situation because the uh, first thing to want to understand here is that there are many different strands of behavioral economics, some of which are quite congenial to neoclassical theory and some of which are quite hostile to it. And so what you have to do is to figure out what it is that seems to be right or wrong. If you want to say, in effect, that uh, neoclassical models presuppose that everybody makes the right choice under uncertainty at every time, uh, that's the dead loser. Uh, there are a bunch of situations where that more or less holds when you have professionals training in markets with all sorts of programs and support for them. But most of us make mistakes all the time in one way or another. There are some people in behavioral economics who say that when they make these mistakes, it turns out that they're often fatal. There are other people who say that when people make these mistakes, they have devices that they could correct them. So in the heuristics and bias literature, uh, there are two strands. One is represented mainly by Danny Kahneman and the late Aaron Tversky. And what they tend to do is to think that many of these things lead you astray and that some kind of intervention is necessary to correct them. On the other side, there's a fellow named Gerd Gegerenzer, who used to be in the United States and now back in Germany, who uses the phrase fast and frugal. And what he says is, look, everybody has to make calculations. Nobody can make them formally. So what we do is we use these rules of thumb, and they're much more accurate than we think in many other cases. Uh, so there is a debate as to whether or not when people know they don't have perfect rationality, how do they compensate for this situation? The second thing is there are other ways in which you can start to compensate. So I wrote a paper on this once, and I talked about second-order rationality. What I meant by that is I know that I'm not very good at figuring out how stock markets move, and I'm not very good at figuring out how to repair electronic equipment, but I get advice or assistance from other individuals so that one of the functions about markets is that what you do is you trade in for somebody else's services in areas where you know they're incompetent, 
you run the risk as you always do that they may take advantage of you. And then you try to bond them by contract warranties, reputations, other sorts of things. And that generally speaking, what happens is if you take these devices, what you do is you tend to reduce the overall risk of residual mistakes. Now, uh, the uh, sort of pessimistic school of behavioral economics says that somehow or other you can never get yourself out of these boxes and that even the people who think that they can avoid these heuristics and biases can nonetheless fall prey to them, at which point the question is, why is it there's anybody in the state who's smart enough to be able to correct anybody from any kind of mistake whatsoever. Uh, So if you have these two kinds of views, my position is, of course, people make mistakes. Are they as systematic as the behavioralists say uh, when they're talking about cognitive biases? Well, one of the reasons you know it's wrong is there are too many biases. So if you look at Wikipedia, you can find over a 100 of these things, and often they cut in different situations. Some people give too much weight to the last instance in a class. Some people give too little weight to the last instance in the class. And one is called the anchoring bias, and the other is called the availability bias. And you can't suffer from both of them at the same time, although some people can suffer from one and others can suffer from the other. So as far as I can see on the rationality competence side, everybody understands that you're not there. And what the rational choice theory is much more humble than you might have thought. And what it really says is people are trying to do their best. And if they make mistakes, they're trying to figure out ways in which they can correct it. And if that's the basic assumption, uh, then what you discover is that markets don't work as well as we would like. But these corrective devices, if they're strong, make them work pretty darn well. So if you look around, uh, there are lots of mistakes you can make in physics and in probability, but you don't see buildings falling down all the time. Why is that? Because people know how to check their work and how to hire professionals. So Richard, Thaler and Sunstein's solution to what they characterize as the irrationality problem is something that they call libertarian paternalism. And this takes the form of what they call nudges, where the policy intervention is usually something pretty modest, like changing people's default options. So one of the signature examples of this in the book is defaulting people to contributing to a retirement plan where they would have to opt out instead of allowing them to opt in with the assumption being that inertia will win out more often than not if the onus is on the individual to to join the plan. Just a simple tweak to the rules that could, they say, increase the savings rate. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, the question is not what's wrong with it. The first question, is it libertarian paternalism or is it something else? Uh, So uh, if you want to start off with the two phrases, the paternalism part is very tough. And generally speaking, um, parents do a lot more than nudge. They discipline, they protect people against outsiders. And in effect, what they do is they have a unique position over a child uh, because we know, A, the child needs protection, and B, we know that the parents are more likely to have their interests aligned with the child. When you start making the state um, a paternalist, it gets a little bit more ominous. You're not talking about kids anymore. You're talking about adults, many of whom are parents. And there's no obvious alignment between the incentive of the state as the parent as there is with respect to the parent as the parent. And so people who are basically suspicious of this whole thing essentially start to treat this as though it's a kind of a nanny state reducing people to children. And well, is that what you're doing in this case? Well, it depends on who it is that starts to set the nudges. Because the other point of this is a libertarian theory. Now, libertarian theory generally means that we want people to be free to make whatever contracts they are. And what we do is we have three general constraints on contractual freedom. 
or general behavioral freedom. You can't use force to get somebody into a contract. You can't lie to them to get them into a contract. And you don't allow people to start forming monopolies. So if you're going to start talking about libertarian paternalism, the first thing you'd want to do is to look at the system and see all the cases where you have tough paternalism, and they should be in favor of eliminating all of this stuff, which of course they're not. So in 1919, you know, Cass wrote this article on why it is that markets don't stop discrimination. And that was an argument for why you keep the laws in place. But the anti-discrimination laws are restrictions on freedom of contract, often completely unassociated with monopoly behavior. And so you look at the book, they have one sentence in Nudge in which they said human error might justify these laws. But of course they don't. And in many ways, the intervention of the state there is heavy-handed, klutzy, and all the wrong way. And so what you really want for somebody who really is good on this stuff is don't start telling me how you're going to tweak with the options, telling me where you're going to deregulate, and then try to figure out what nudge you're going to put into place if you tell people, look, we don't have an anti-discrimination law. And you might say to an employer, it's nice for you to do, and then you have to figure out what. Well, have an affirmative action program, don't have an affirmative action program. There are all sorts of ways that you could nudge, none of which are obvious. So uh, the program essentially basically is silent about the libertarian part. What they want to do then is to say, well, when do we start nudging people when we see they have choices? And here you get yourself into a different set of problems. Sometimes the nudges are a little bit uh, sort of obnoxious. What makes you think you know more about my retirement situation than I do uh, that you're going to nudge me? And so if you actually look at the literature on this, figuring out what the optimal retirement strategy for people is very difficult. You have to ask how old they are, how much capital they have, how many children they have, whether the spouse is working, whether they're going to retire where they live in an expensive city like New York or move off to the country. You go on and on. And it turns out it's not at all clear that one size fits all is correct. So for some people, you're nudging them in the right direction. For other people, you're nudging them in the wrong direction. Uh, the correct rule in many cases is you don't want people uh, to be told that this is the optimal default by way of a recommendation and you change it. You're making a mistake. What you do is you may say, well, here are a bunch of alternatives. Give them a lot of information and then say, look, what you have to do is to go out and get some advice from somebody, a financial planner, a life planner to tell you what you do. Now, if you want to call getting advice from somebody whom you pick as a form of paternalism, then the term has no meaning because that's the quintessential market behavior that everybody tries to use in order to overcome this. So it's not paternalist in that particular sense unless it's sneaky, at which point it becomes, I think, rather objectionable. And then in some sense, if you're talking about employers, they don't nudge. If you want to work for me, you have to agree to have an annual physical. You want to work for me, you have to make sure you keep your weight below a certain level. And if you don't do the kinds of things that I specify, uh, then it turns out I'm not going to hire you anymore. So they don't nudge, they tell. And it's perfectly okay under those circumstances because what happens is if you don't like the instruction, you simply get another job. So in an odd sense, they're wrong in another way because they assume that when you have private actors, they can only nudge. Whereas in many cases, they can bind you. So NYU in Chicago have done for me and for everybody else. You want to work here? You have to contribute so much to your retirement plan. And then in addition, you got a bunch of options. Well, that's a much more complicated menu than they're talking about, but it's also coercive. So on the libertarian side, it's perfectly okay for private employers to dictate what they expect of customers or rather employees in competitive markets. And it has nothing to do with nudges or it may have something to do with nudges, but the operative situation is doing it. On the other hand, if the state comes along 
and it starts to tell you that we mandate such and such a contribution, then you get yourself into Social Security. And what happens there is the political risk that Nudge always ignores, namely the fact that you put people into large pools and the system becomes a veritable cesspool in one sense because of the massive cross-subsidy that take place across individuals and across time. And in your individual retirement plan, Nudge to not Nudge, you know what's your money and what's somebody else's. You look at your retirement statement under Social Security, you have no idea as to how much you put into this plan in terms of its present value, that is adding interest to the contributions. You don't know what the present value is. You don't know the value of any of the options that the government gives you because the real political risk of this is massive transfers for political behavior. And the libertarian paternalism tends to ignore the public choice risk. And so these markets become much more complicated. And it's not at all clear that they got the right nudge. And it's not at all clear that they should be doing nudges at all. Okay, so you're skeptical of this, but let me get you to consider it as a comparative exercise. In a second-best world, Richard, where we're not going to get the kind of sweeping deregulation that you'd be in favor of, would we be better off on balance if a lot more of our regulatory interventions took the form of nudges rather than your sort of more conventional command and control regulations, or, or is it essentially a wash? Oh, no. I'm very much in favor of soft-pedaling government regulation, but I'm not in favor of soft-pedaling contractual regulation in competitive markets. And, and so what one would want to do is to take all of the regulatory apparatus and put it into a set of soft default rules, you contract out. So to give you an illustration, one of the nuttier proposals that sometimes comes forward is if you look at labor contracts, it turns out that the common law solution was that these are contracts at will. Uh, you could fire somebody for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all, and you could quit for that. And what the behavioral economics people start to say is, well, uh, that means that people don't understand the level of insecurity when they take jobs. We want a four-course contract as the default position. Now, whatever you may think about retirement contracts, a default position of four-course in employment cases is nothing short of total insanity. There is no firm anywhere that has ever done it with their richest employees, their poorest employees, their most skilled and everybody. It's not that they always have at-will contracts. Sometimes they say, I won't be able to fire you for a couple of years, or if I fire you, I have to pay severance stack damages. But you never want to use as a default position a form of agreement that nobody has. And then the question is, how do you get out of the default? I've looked at some of the things, particularly that Cass Sunstein has written, and it's not clear whether or not the employee can say, I just don't want to be in this world, or whether the employee is the only person who can say, I want to get rid of this four-course thing. You want to get me out of it, you have to pay me. Now, that becomes really coercive if it's the latter, and it's simply mindless if it's the former. Uh, the optimal strategy in almost every case is if you want to give the worker security, uh, what you do is you either give them a term contract, or more commonly, you award them severance pay if they're quitting. And what does severance pay do? Well, on the one hand, it makes an employer more reluctant to fire because he now has to pay a price in order to do it. For another thing, it's very cheap to administer once you know what the number is. And for a third thing, the employee now knows that he's got a lump sum in his pocket. He should do the best deal for himself wholly without regard to his former employment. So it simply dominates the four-cause arrangement, which leads you into any kinds of craziness. And indeed, where do we have to worry about four-cause? It's only when we have regulation. 
labor statutes and anti-discrimination laws which say you can't fire because of union activities or because of race, at which point you then have to spend a bloody fortune documenting all the dismissals that you want to make because of otherwise. Uh, So this is a case in which it may be coercive, at which point it's thoroughly objectionable, or it may be something which either side could get rid of, which is totally useless. Because if you allow employers to get out of this, every single employer, without exception, will put a four-cause contract in, and every worker will sign it. Now, why will the worker sign it? Because for one thing, there are many employees, and the last thing you want to do is to go into a place where a bad employee cannot be fired, um, because then your life is miserable, and foreclose protects guys whom you don't want to be protected. And you also think the business is going to start to shrink. So there's no reason why any employee would ever want to enter into that kind of arrangement. So if you're trying to ask about what's going on, uh, the simple observation here is this particular form of libertarian paternalism rests on a profound and total ignorance of the way labor markets start to work. And in so doing, what it does is it has wild overconfidence about how these things ought to happen. It's not that employers know everything or workers know everything. There's always uncertainty. But if you get this kind of uniformity on the fundamental structure of contract, it becomes very different from the default auctions in a retirement plan where lots of people sign in, some people sign out. It turns out in certain situations like with credit cards, you do have certain sort of rich ambiguities there. And setting the default in one way may mean that people revolve. You set it in another way, they may pay it off. But those differences usually turn out to be 10 or 15%. And you certainly don't want to set policy with respect to credit and debit cards on that kind of difference. There are so many things of a coercive nature that are wrong in credit and debit card markets. Every piece of regulation that you can think of on interchange fees and on disclosure requirements that are mandated tend to be wrong. Uh, So that what you really want the libertarian paternalists to do is to put aside their paternalist hat which is relatively inconsequential and dangerous, and concentrate on their libertarian hat and call for massive deregulation in many of these markets. And you just don't see that. You look at Nudge and there's nothing in there about what it is the libertarians would require us to dismantle. All they want to do is to give Nudges and tell people, hey, you know, an employer should put nutritious food at eye level so people will eat it. The moment you say that, you know what the reaction of most people is? I don't want people messing with my brain in that particular fashion. I regard that as perfectly offensive. You put things out which you think I want, then I'll decide. And if I'm not going to eat that crappy kind of food, my spouse will tell me, my parents will tell me, my employer will tell me perhaps. But I don't want you guys kind of using this sublime messaging system uh, to alter preferences because people will regard it as an imposition and they'll resent it. I'll give you one example of this which is 30 years ago almost, I was, we were dealing with a situation about a default term. And the question was, when you want to get a new service, can somebody give it to you with the ability to opt out on your part? Very easy. And to do so on the grounds that economically it's really rational you to get it. And this is what people's reaction was. You want to give me a new service, I'll be darned if I want you to do this under a default term. On the other hand, if it's a question of whether or not you will roll over your credit card when it expires, everybody insists that you want to do it. And so what you do is you have two different kinds of arrangements, the same default situation. And what happens is if you've already accepted a a kind of a service, people say, well, we really know you want it. You don't want to go overseas with your credit card bad, so please renew it. But when it comes to new services, even though I could demonstrate, as I did in testimony, that it's perfectly rational to do this, the resentment 
market levels were unbelievable. Every firm withdrew this stuff, and they started to sell things in the conventional fashion. Here's a new service. We'll make it easy for you to sign up. Uh, so the opt-in, opt-out on the default provision is really very sensitive to whether you're continuing something or whether you're introducing something new. And there's nothing whatsoever in libertarian paternalism which captures that really vital distinction. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.